Broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio inside the Sonesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. It's time for Travel Safely with Brian Mulligan. Travel Safely is presented by Applied Information, creator of the Travel Safely smartphone app. Welcome everyone to Travel Safely, the business talk show bringing you the latest in innovation from transportation, technology and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Brian Mulligan, coming to you from the Subaru Business Radio X studio in Gwinnett County in Georgia. The show is sponsored by Applied Information, a technology company here in Gwinnett, focused on using technology to save lives and improve traffic. Our guest today is AJ Piplico, founder and chief executive at Hermius, an Atlanta aerospace company of all things, developing a Mach 5 aircraft with the goal of massively reducing flight times and increasing safety for long-haul business class air travel. Fascinating. Welcome, AJ. Thank you. Thanks. Our topic of the day is radical change in the world of air travel. Atlanta is known all over the world for being a leader in commercial air travel with Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. But really, could Atlanta become the center of supersonic air travel? Well, let's find out more, AJ. So, before we get into the details of, of aerospace, and I'm a... I'm a, I've been an aeronautics guy enthusiast all my life, <laughs> so I'm, I'm fascinated <coughs> to talk about this. But talk to us about the AJ Public story. How did you come to be in Georgia and, of all things, develop an aerospace company here? <laughs> well, it all starts with uh, you know Star Trek and Star Wars back in the day. <laughs> oh, wow. um, so I grew up in Florida. I was born in New York, but grew up in Florida. Um, went to Georgia Tech for undergrad and did my master's there as well, um, both in aerospace engineering. When I went in, I didn't really know kind of what to expect in terms of where that would take my my career and, and life in the future. Um, but uh, I think I can kind of go back to the first air show I ever went to is at MacDill Air Force Base in, uh, in Tampa. And there was a C-5 Galaxy. So it's one of the largest cargo aircraft that we have. Um, and to see something, you know, the size of a building lay on its side and take off and go fly, that just boggled my mind. It's like something that shouldn't happen. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to go make things like that. Um, so that's what kind of drove me to, uh, to Georgia Tech in, in aerospace. And, you know, I learned through not just my academic work, but also through internships and co-op experiences at NASA, um, down at Johnson Space Center in Houston, um, what it meant to be an aerospace engineer. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's so much more to the game than, uh, you know, tube and wing aircraft. Um, you know, everything from uh, spacecraft and satellites to rockets and now hypersonic aircraft. Um, so after, after uh, university, I started working at a local airspace company called Spaceworks. Um, started doing conceptual design for all sorts of airspace systems, but focused on reusable launch vehicles and high-speed aircraft. So I kind of learned my way through um, how you, from the back of a napkin, put some numbers behind designing an aircraft that flies five times the speed of sound. Um, from there, um, I kind of branched into the entrepreneurial part of my background. Um, so within Spaceworks, uh, we started a subsidiary company called Generation Orbit, and that company was started to build small rockets to launch small satellites to orbit. So these are satellites you can hold in your hand. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we took that company. We had never built anything before, so the first thing we wanted to do was, was build a rocket and show that we can do it. Um, and the mission for that rocket ended up being not going to orbit, but flying really fast in the atmosphere. So it was kind of like a flying wind tunnel, if you think right, about it. Right, right, right. So um, that kind of brought together 
aviation and space in, in a way that I hadn't really thought about, um, you know, when I was, when I was in school. Um, but that's really, I think where the, uh, you know, the origin of, uh, of Hermias comes from is kind of the, the bringing together of this, uh, commercial space way of, of doing business that we've seen through, you know, Blue Origin and SpaceX and companies like that and applying it to, you know, the aviation part of the industry that's, you know, for the, for the better part of the past 50, 60 years, um, we haven't gone much faster and we've done a lot to kind of improve the efficiency and safety of air travel. Um, but speed hasn't changed. Um, it's actually gone, gone backwards a little bit. Correct. Correct. I mean, that, that, that's fascinating because it's just, you know, the couple of things that stand out for me. One is I've lived in Atlanta for, for 23 years and I had no idea there was an aerospace industry here. <laughs> and so, I mean, do you guys just operate under the radar or I mean, how does, yeah, the, how does are, the entrepreneurship things are, things and, and aerospace industry work in Atlanta? Is it based around Dobbins or based around... No, I wouldn't say it's necessarily based uh, kind of geographically, um, but I would say that it uh, it has grown out of Georgia Tech in, in a large way. Um, so SpaceWorks was founded by a professor from Georgia Tech, um, John Olds. So uh, he built that company, um, or you know, out of uh, coming out of Georgia Tech and their space systems design lab. Um, and you know, we have a lot of aerospace in not just the city of Atlanta, but the state of Georgia. I mean, we have Delta headquartered here. We have UPS headquartered here. Gulfstream down in Savannah. Lockheed Martin. Um, Aerospace is, I think, the third or fourth largest export of the state. And yeah, most people don't necessarily well, realize yeah, that's that. That's a good point. Yeah. Are you, are you able to attract the right kind of talent here to Atlanta? I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We get it all the time. Um, Atlanta is a pretty unique place to be working on these types of things. You've already hit on a number of the, the pieces that make Atlanta kind of a transportation hub. You know, we have the busiest airport in the world, um, Delta, UPS, Gulfstream. Yeah. Um, the second best aerospace school in the country in Georgia Tech. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot of people who want to work on these types of problems, but you know, don't necessarily want to live in the typical hotbeds of uh, Los Angeles or Silicon Valley or, or even the Northeast. So you know, having a place in the Southeast that is unique um, and where you know we are unique, there's not a whole lot of companies like us here. That gives us a competitive advantage. Um, also, labor costs are quite a bit less than the Bay Area. <laughs> Co correct. I mean, that's a, that's a great incentive. I mean, that's why we're we're in Atlanta as well. Is that uh, you can get great people at a reasonable price, mm -hmm. and and you can uh, um, you know access the gr a great airport where you can fly anywhere more or less with you know single mm -hmm. single leg. And if you locate yourself down in Savannah or something like that, then it becomes much more difficult to travel. But um, but Given that typically the way venture funding works is that they look at uh, an existing business and then you come up with a business plan that's just a little incremental step from where mm -hmm. everybody is. Now, building an airplane that flies five times the speed <laughs> of sound, that's not an incremental step from where no. we are. How, how do you set about attracting funding You know, what, which, with what might be a lo considered a long-shot business? Sure. I think um, you kind of have to look for the right people. Um, there are plenty of visionaries out there who, you know, their mission as a venture capitalist is, you know, not necessarily, uh, obviously it's, you know, to, to provide a return, otherwise they wouldn't be in business, but, um, you know, broader than that. And generally you'll find it in the, in the more successful ones, some of the bigger firms. Um, but, you know, they have an opportunity to take bets on things that are um, kind of high risk, but very high payoff in terms of the effect that they can, you know, the positive effect they can have on society. So, um, you know, the, the pool of, of venture capitalists that uh, are able to do that and interested in doing that is obviously smaller than, than the whole. Um, but those are the kinds of people that, you know, we're interested in, in working in. And, and sort of what sort of time frame are they looking at for, have, 
you know, some kind of it depends. They, a decade, um, a decade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically? that that's that's kind of the um, the pretty long term side of uh, of venture. You know, eight to ten years. Um, but you know, given what we're doing, um, it's it's not going to be uh, you know ten years before the company has revenue. There's um, a pretty good incremental path along the way as we're kind of building. We're starting small, building small vehicles, and then kind of growing them in terms of scale and capability. Um, and that'll allow us to access a couple of ancillary markets along the way and, and grow the company's revenues along with you know the, the funding that we're raising. Right, because it's actually quite a good day to be actually be talking about this um, and commercial space flight intersected with air travel, uh, because uh, Fal- you know obviously SpaceX launched mm-hmm. their Fal- Falcon Heavy, yep, uh, and uh, landed two out of their three mm-hmm. cores, and I, and I love the, the core uh, stage is tricky. The the core, yeah, I mean it was good. it was traveling at four times the speed of a rifle bullet, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I like I love the term of an RUD is a yes, rap- yeah. rapid unexpected disassembly yes. or something like that called a big crash, but. Yep. But nonetheless, they they've pioneered the way yep. for private sector mm-hmm. to tackle these things that up until now people are only really yeah. seen could be done with government funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's there's kind of a, a core philosophy behind the way that commercial space companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX. I, I kind of you know poke on them because they're the the kind of the big boys, um, but. The way the approach that they took to developing complex systems um, was, you know, not so much about um, kind of working design and analysis and back and forth for years and years and years. It was to kind of get a good feel for what you wanted to build and then go build it. Because it's when you kind of build integrated systems, you put hardware and software together, you find all the problems you didn't think you would have or you didn't know about, um, and you're able to iterate. I mean, you know, SpaceX specifically, I think, has demonstrated this better than anybody. Yeah. They used every single paying customer flight as a test flight, and that's how they got to reusability. Without having to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for their own you know, test campaigns, they were just clever about the way that they did it. And yeah, they, they, they certainly did a great uh, job with that. Uh, and even uh, Tesla, which is another, you know, obviously Elon Musk's mm-hmm. story, I, um, I you know, was at a symposium last week with a guy stood up in the stage and he said, you know, the, the biggest thing about Tesla is they use their 100,000 cars as a test fleet without your permission. So everybody <laughs> should be offended by what they do. And I'm going, high five, man. I mean, what a, what a business model to be able to I mean, get all that data and, and use it to improve your product. Yeah, I mean, you know, f- with, the, with all the Teslas on the road today, they're gathering massive amounts of data with every single one. And that's what's enabling them to um, you know, bring autonomous cars into you know, everyday life. Into, main, into mainstream. After the break, we'll drill down deeper into the nuts and bolts that is there are any in your supersonic jets. Uh, being developed by AJ and his team at uh, Hermia. So, but first, 30 seconds with Sarah. This is your 30 seconds or less with Sarah. A recent study by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety calls for more driver training after finding that most drivers don't really understand what semi-autonomous driving systems do. The study looked at Tesla's autopilot versus competitor products like Traffic Jam Assist and Audis and Acuras, BMW's Driving Assist Plus, and Nissan's ProPilot Assist. Nearly half of the 2,000 people surveyed said it would be safe to take their hands off the wheel using an autopilot, while only 30% thought it would be safe in a competitor's. 6% thought it would be just fine to take a nap. Tesla argues that the study was of the general population, and Tesla drivers presumably have access to in-car and manual instructions. However, the study does highlight the big gap between what the public assumes these systems do and what is, in fact, safe operation of the vehicle. Back to you, Brian. Thanks, Harry. In case you're just joining us, this is Travel Safety with Brian Mulligan, How to Save Lives and Improve Traffic with our guest, AJ Paprika, co-founder and CEO of Hermius. 
an Atlanta-based company developing a supersonic business jet. Tell us specifically about about the business jets. How do you go from a Concord, which uh, you know was a great uh, you know technical success all those years ago, and then ended up commercially struggling? How do you go from there to uh, to to a business class uh, uh, supersonic jet? How fast will it fly? How mm-hmm. high? What and so forth. Sure. So yeah, Concorde is a, is a really interesting story. Um, you know, it was developed by two governments. Um, the company that we know today as Airbus came out of that development program, um, and that drove a lot of the way that uh, kind of its cost structure was built up. So, um, but I mean, it operated successfully for you know twenty five yeah. years or so, um, and was one of the safest aircraft in, in the skies. Um, there's a lot of technology that's kind of improved since you know the Concorde days. Um, we kind of place our uh, interest in, in three core areas. One is artificial intelligence, um, so driving uh, the massive amounts of data that we'll be gathering and all of the testing on the ground in simulation and in flight that we'll be doing into you know fully autonomous systems down the road. Um, obviously, there are, there are laws that um, that we have to deal with, but that's kind of a, a core competency that we'll be building into the. So, so the whole ba- basis of this that actually will be an autonomous hypersonic jet. We'll see. So, <laughs> when we get to flying people, there'll be pilots on Th- it to there'll start. There'll be pilots, but but, but the, idea is the that framework will be there. The experience base will be there to make a transition down the road. Because you know, when you're flying at Mach five, you know, the, the amount of time you have to make a decision is is very very small. So. Yeah, and, and so in fact, again, like this transition to autonomous driving, mm-hmm. the pilots will be supervising systems. I mean, fly-by-wire is already well known in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the aircraft industry, so it's not like it's going to be new. But in other words, the first-line reaction to disturbances and things will be done by computers. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that what we're saying? With yep. the pilots supervising yep, those right. systems? Yep. And eventually, we'll kind of progress into different levels of autonomy um, and decision-making, but that's that's for the future. Uh, how about engines and uh, types sure. of fuel and stuff? Is these scramjets or they... Close. So, uh, on the propulsion side, we will be using uh, a ramjet for the high-speed portion of flight. Uh, so, that's kind of like a scramjet, but the combustion stays subsonic. So, when the air is going through the, the combustor, it stays below the speed of sound, so we, we slow it down pretty substantially, um, and that's the kind of difference between the two. Um, problem with the ramjet is you uh, you can't generate thrust when you're not moving. You have to get up to supersonic speeds for the um, to start generating shock waves, compressing the air and burning it. So we'll be using a turbojet for the low speed portion of flight. So pretty similar to the way that uh, you know commercial aircraft are, are powered today, um, and then uh, some little. Magic sauce to bridge the gap between the two. And and the, and the ramjet we're talking about uh, the thing with the sort of the, the the doodle bag from World War Two with the with, <laughs> with with the little flaps at the front that open and close, or is this just all done with dynamic air pressure variation? And yeah, like? so the, there's there's going to be uh, a reasonable amount of moving parts in the in the engine, uh, mostly in the ducting, so the the inlet and the nozzle. Uh, but the ramjet itself doesn't have any moving parts. Okay, okay, wow. What about the noise? I mean, what about so, the noise? So, Indeed. yeah, you know, how, how do you deal with sonic booms and, sure. s- and, and supersonic travel over land? Yep. So, uh, given the way that the kind of current legislations are, which in the United States say that you cannot fly commercially faster than Mach 1 over land, um, regardless of whether or not you make a sonic boom on the ground, um, we've based the business case completely on overwater routes. So, this is crossing oceans. Um, now, if the laws change, which I, I think there's being uh, quite a bit of progress going on right now in, mm-hmm. in improving those laws, becoming kind of performance-based, um, we can't bank on that. Um, so we banked our business case on the way the laws are written today, which means 
flying over water. So routes similar to what Concorde flew, um, although a bit broader. So you know, crossing the Atlantic Ocean is uh, you know probably the most popular route, um, but also crossing the Pacific. Um, and then there's also a number of north-south routes that are pretty interesting, both uh, in Asia, North and South America, Europe, Africa. So, so, so you're talking about long-distance hypersonic. Yes. Well, that's route. that's where it makes sense. Right? Okay. Yeah. So you know you're gonna spend you know. 10, 20 minutes accelerating up to Mach 5 and decelerating back down. So in order for it to make sense, you kind of have to apply it to long distances. Like, you know, you wouldn't necessarily fly from Atlanta to Savannah. Um, yeah. You'd probably drive a car in that case because of all the time it takes to go to the airport and so forth. So, yeah, this is really for longer distance travel. So the $64,000 question is, where are you in development? Is this still at the back of a napkin stage mm -hmm. or are you ready to start flying stuff? Building hardware? Where, yep. where are you in that so paradigm? I'd then? say definitely in between back of a napkin and, uh, and flying things. So um, this year we're working, our, our main technical objective is to build the first prototype of our engine. Um, so that'll uh, function from uh, wheel stop on the ground all the way up to Mach 5. Uh, and we'll be testing that in a wind tunnel on the ground. So, oh, are um, there wind tunnels here in Atlanta that that support Mach Five? No, we'll be going up to Indiana. Okay. Uh, actually, there's some, some university tunnels up in Indiana that that have facilities that kind of meet our needs. So, um, that's the main goal for this year. And then over the kind of following two and a half years or so, our goal will be to get that engine into an airframe and then up into the air, and then demonstrate that we can take off from the ground, touch Mach Five, come back and land, and do that over and over and over again. Uh, with tons of instrumentation, there's so much we have to learn. Um, and is this going to be a carbon fiber airframe? Or no, it'll be primarily metallic. So the kind of third uh, leg of the stool, if you will, on the technology front for us. Uh, so, you know, artificial intelligence and then propulsion. The final one is, is high temperature structures. So um, the titanium uh, alloys that we have today commercially available are uh, are pretty good up at the temperatures that we'll be seeing in most of the airframe for uh, for cruising at Mach 5. Uh, certain parts of the airframe will be composite, uh, potentially, so the, the leading edges of the wings and the nose where it gets really, really hot. Mm -hmm. um, but the vast majority of the structure will be titanium. So in fact, you can actually accomplish this with today's materials. Exactly. That, that's pretty interesting. And then that's actually the, you know, one of the, going back to the SpaceX model is one of the things that they actually pioneered mm -hmm. is the idea of using commercial computers, com you know, yep. in, in industrial uh, technologies to the, the greatest extent possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's not a whole lot of kind of little components that need to be invented. They just need to be put together in an efficient system and in, in hardware and shown. So, so where, I mean, I'd, I'd love to come and see this thing fly. Where you, where are you going to fly it? Is that an Atlanta mm -hmm. thing, or you do get, get into out into the middle of the desert somewhere? Exactly. Yeah. So I don't think we'll be flight testing too much here in Atlanta. Um, we might do some in Florida, but most likely we'll be out uh, out in California, um, either at Edwards Air Force Base, potentially in New Mexico, uh, from Spaceport America. So there are some pretty good uh, flight test ranges available to us. So, so, what is, do you think the future holds for supersonic flight and space travel in the in the next five to ten years? I mean, is this all going to be for real? Do you think? Absolutely. How, how many companies are there working in a similar space to you? So, in uh, in let's call it you know supersonic aircraft. Um, so, besides us, you have Boom Supersonic. So, they're building a Mach 2.2 commercial aircraft. It'll carry 45, 55 people or so. Uh, you have Arion Supersonic. They're working on a th 11 or 13 passenger business jet that'll fly Mach 1.4, 1.6. Um, there's another company called Spike, also working on a Mach 1.6 or 1.8 business jet. 
Um, and then you have uh, the rocket folks. So Elon has talked a lot about um, using big Falcon <laughs> rocket for moving people from one place to another. Uh, I think uh, I think it's it's an interesting way of, of doing things for really really long range missions, like you know halfway across across the world. Um, I think for crossing oceans, I think airplanes are still going to be the more efficient choice. Um, and and as landing is center core, uh, yeah, yeah, it's still it, tough. It, it, it's it's still just tough. going to be a very difficult thing to pull off. With with the kind of safety you need for sure. commercial oh, air travel, yeah, you know, we we have we have the same things to prove. Frankly, yeah. I mean, you know, nobody has flown a Mach five aircraft reusably before, so we have to do the same thing and prove that how, it can how, be done. How reliably. many people are going to be on your on your plane? Is Our cabin will carry about twenty people, so, so it's yeah. Is that oh well, that's a, that that's a good size mm-hmm. business jet. Yep, good size business jet, and at Mach five, uh, it's a, actually a pretty viable commercial airliner as well. All right, and that gets you across the Atlantic in... 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Yep. Wheels up to wheels down. Yep. To touchdown. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you, AJ, and, and thank you all for listening to Travel Safely, brought to you by Applied Information, the show about transportation technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Today, we've been talking about the future of flight and how Georgia is playing a key role. Our guest has been AJ Piplica, co-founder and CEO of Hermes, a company developing a Mac five business class aircraft for commercial use. So AJ, thanks uh, for visiting with us and all you do in helping Georgia and make the world a better place. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Until next time, this is Brian Mulligan signing off from Business Radio X and travel safely. (music) 